Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Daily Objective, brought to you by the Ayn Rand Center UK, where we apply the philosophy of objectivism to everything. And today, the discussion is an interesting one to me. I hope you'll find it interesting. I think it's very relevant today, since we're hearing talks about a national divorce. And for the first time in a long time, the left is talking about it, not just the right, not just fringy libertarians who have a particular theory of government, but the left. Um, Sarah Silverman uh, is one glaring popular example of somebody who's saying, look, we just can't agree anymore on ideology. We might as well get a divorce. <laughs> now, of course, this happened before in the 1860s, uh, and it was it was preceded by an entire theory of states' rights and, and, and an orientation towards the Constitution, which still is alive today. So the question is, with respect to this divorce, are we in a compact or, uh, or was the Constitution a grant by the whole people to the government of certain powers? And this is this how you answer this question determines a lot. Uh, to to really help me get through this crazy, crazy, crazy maze of legality uh, and philosophy, I've got my my good friend James Valiant. James, help me with this because I'm <laughs> I'm a I'm a little confused, and I know that the that the life of our union depends on how we answer this question. Now it seems to me that the Articles of Confederation, which govern the quote unquote United States right after the Revolutionary War, up until the ratification of the Constitution of the United States. That seemed like it was an actual compact between states. It didn't result in very good government to me. This seems different. What say you? That is absolutely correct. <laughs> the initial way in which the states were organized into a federal union, a loose federal union, can hardly be called really a government in, in one sense. We had 13 sovereign governments, 13 sovereign nations. And they met just to discuss the relations with Great Britain before the Declaration of Independence came out in something called the First Continental Congress. And each state sent uh, uh, delegates to Philadelphia uh, to be part of the Continental Congress. And then there was a second Continental Congress, and it was only there that they decided to declare independence from Great Britain. And it was required mind you, that it be unanimous before that declaration get adopted. It required unanimity between all of these 13 independent countries, as it were. Now, they proposed later on a, a way of organizing themselves, which was really a treaty between nations called the Articles of Confederation. It required unanimity for any changes to be made, and it required a supermajority for anything whatever to be done. So with either with either nine or 13 states required to agree on everything, with each state getting one vote um, and really no executive authority, uh, it was clear that this, the Articles of Confederation, as you describe it, was a compact. It was really just a treaty alliance, like more akin, say, to the EU than to, but even the EU I had more powers than the Articles of Confederation, frankly. More direct power exists under the EU than the Articles of Confederation gave the federal government uh, initially. This was perceived as causing all kinds of problems. As we indicated in an earlier podcast, there were trade wars, tariffs being erected, trade wars going on between the states, all kinds of conflicts and confusion going on. And nor was uh, the United States able to present a united front in a foreign policy 
way. And that was becoming increasingly urgent uh, as uh, Europe was going into the French Revolution and the Napoleonic era. So it was becoming increasingly urgent that America speak with one voice. For all these reasons, the articles were thought to be deficient. And so it was, uh, you know, there's an argument as to whether or not the Constitutional Convention itself was legitimately called under the Articles of Confederation. Um, but that really doesn't matter. Unanimously, the Articles of Confederation, the Congress under the Articles of Confederation unanimously approved sending the proposed Constitution that had been developed in Philadelphia in uh, 1787, the summer of 1887, there was this convention, uh, the Constitutional Convention with George Washington at its head. Well, the Congress under the Articles of Confederation unanimously agreed to allow that Constitution to go to the states, but it wasn't going to be ratified by the state legislatures. It was going to be ratified by conventions uniquely called by the people of those states or the legislatures of those states to see if it would be ratified. It required the same kind of supermajority of nine out of the 13 states in order just to be ratified. Eventually, all 13 states did ratify it. Uh, the the <clears throat> The last comer of that uh, Rhode Island uh, only ratified because they required a popular plebiscite of the people. I say all this because it's important to the distinction here. The Constitution of the United States is not merely a continuation of the government begun under the Articles of Confederation. It was a radical break. It begins with a preamble that says, we, the people, established this Constitution, and it was established unanimously by all 13 states, by independent conventions outside of their legislatures. So the people of the United States adopted, we the people adopted this new government, which transcended, it seems to me, it, think of it this way, if the Articles of Confederation really were just a compact of states, by their unanimous adoption by popular conventions, or in Rhode Island's case, by popular vote, trumps anything that previously came before and created an, a wholly new, a wholly new legitimate basis for legitimacy for this government uh, formed by we the people. And within the body of that constitution were imposed certain limitations on state power, such as uh, all states must have a Republican form of government. Uh, based on that theory, it seems to me that what we have is a government now, a federal government now, that can rule on the legitimacy of what states do. And once the states had unanimously uh, joined into that, they're now part of a, a single federal government not a, a mere uh, loose confederation which they can drop out of anytime they want. Now, this was controversial. Madison said equivocal things about it, and Thomas Jefferson was totally unequivocal. He was an advocate of the compact theory. If the states do something that violates the federal constitution, stamps on their powers, the states can reject it, said Jefferson. Well, his theory, of whether you like it or not, his theory was rejected and rejected by the first Supreme Court, John Jay. I think the case is Chisholm versus Georgia, in which a citizen of one state sued in federal court the state of Georgia. And the federal court and the Supreme Court under our first chief justice said, yeah, you can do that. The federal courts have jurisdiction over a case that involves the whole state of, Virginia, of Georgia versus someone who comes from another state. This inspired the 11th Amendment to the Constitution, limiting mm. the federal government's power to federal court's power to do just that. But until that constitutional amendment happened, 
the the first case of any real significance from the Supreme Court was this Chisholm versus Georgia. It was done before Marbury versus Madison, so we're not quite sure they hadn't established uh, the Supreme Court's rule uh, power to do this kind of judicial review, but nonetheless, it was asserted and the states submitted to it and they required a whole new const uh, constitutional amendment to fix it. Um, so I think that the legal uh, argument against the compact theory is a strong one. Nonetheless, the supporters of slavery and states' rights before the Civil War aggressively used this argument. And some of the uh, greatest arguments against it were made by senators uh, fighting slavery, men like Daniel Webster, who very eloquently argued again and again that uh, the unlike the previous Articles of Confederation, which were a loose confederation of sovereign states, the we the people had established a whole new kind of government with federal supremacy. Yeah, and it's unfortunate to me that the libertarian movement, particularly the anarchists, point to John C. Calhoun as their primary intellectual uh, a racist apologist, slavery apologist. Um, I haven't read any of his stuff, so I don't. I, I can't speak uh, with with any actual firsthand knowledge of his arguments for the states' rights compact theory of government, um, because his slavery apology just makes me think that everything essentially comes from that uh, moral premise. But the, the libertarians won't let go of this idea that it's a compact. So, and, and they do point to something that's true. The, the federal government has far ex, uh, overextended its, its power, its powers over the states, um, which were to you know, make sure that each state has uh, a Republican form of government. And for the most part, powers were in the state's hands, not in the federal government's hand. It had very strict enumerated powers. Under the compact theory of government, whenever those powers, whenever the people of a state disagree with the, the reach and nature of those powers, they can leave the union. But we're talking about a perpetual union. So in the event that the federal government becomes too strong as it has today, what can we do with this grant theory of government? Now, the grant theory of government, I, I, th I think, is, is a very interesting one, too. I want to throw this by you because the, the founders believed in uh, sort of the fiduciary nature of the the governors that they had a fiduciary responsibility to their um to the to the people whom they govern can you explain that a little bit in terms that i think the, the common man can understand because that's a it's a very important distinction well the each state before well, let's back up again for a little more historical context before there was uh, an agreed upon articles of confederation each of these sovereign states these sovereign countries that came into the articles of confederation had their own constitutions constitutions were things that the existed and uh bear in mind too that the bill of rights when we even when we had this new thing that we're calling no longer a compact a federal union established by this constitution, uh, it still limits the powers of government and in, in limits it enormously, giving it very, in fact, the drafters of the constitution stressed the limited nature of the powers. They listed them, delimited them, and then they had the ninth and 10th amendments just to stress that we mean just these specifically limited powers. So the way to uh, fight it my friends, my first comment on what you first said, the way to fight it, my uh, libertarian friends, uh, is through the federal courts. The federal courts are what is going to protect us against encroachments of state power, which can be just as pernicious, just as evil as federal power. 
in fact, sometimes more intimately so as violations of our power, uh, drug laws and uh, the public education system, criminal law are all basically... Abortion, abortion, abortion laws are now back in the states, thanks to the Supreme Court punting it back there. So we have just as much. And in the case of slavery, there if that is your justification for secession, but all by itself, I oppose you on principle for seceding for that motive. It is an illegal, illegitimate, immoral motivation to uh, <laughs> secede on that basis. Now, the federal government has gotten all out of control. There's no question the federal government has gone crazy out of control. But once again, it is a misread of the original Constitution. It is a total, the Supreme Court has ignored that it, it, see, when we say the supremacy of the Constitution, we're not saying that the Constitution gives them all the powers in the world. When I say supremacy of the Constitution, I mean with all the words, with all the limitations, with all the strictures, as well as a broad reading of all the rights that come with it. Now, the governor's power. Governors, in fact, states in general, states have a specific and the 10th Amendment makes this absolutely and perfectly clear. The states have their own jurisdiction, a jurisdiction that the federal government can't step on. That is part of the Madison and the Constitutional Convention itself says that we are a system not only of separation of powers at the federal level, judiciary over here, legislative over here, executive over here. We're also a system of separated powers. Federal government does certain things. The state government does other things. The and it what was written in such a way that it's the residual powers. So, from the federal government standpoint, the governors have the this residual power that's undefined by the federal constitution. On the other hand, it has to follow the limits of both Section Four of the body, and now, thanks to the Fourteenth Amendment, um, at least done in a certain way, uh, the Bill of Rights is now enforced against uh, the <clears throat> states. If that makes sense, thank the God. For the Bill of Rights to be enforced against the states, though, we have to reject this notion that the states can opt out and have slavery or censorship or established religion or whatever other kind of tyranny they want. You know, we have reached a point of politics <clears throat> that is so intense and so fiery that both sides sort of want to split up. That was the situation <clears throat> for the Civil War. It really, really was. Y'all want slavery. Y'all want freedom. Why don't we just do two different nations? Well, that's what the Civil War was all about. You don't get to have two nations, uh, especially if what you want to do is get away with violating people's rights. And the, in my mind, as I said in our last podcast, the 14th Amendment put that to bed. It required states. No state shall deprive any person of equal protection. No state shall deprive any person of the uh, privileges and immunities of the citizens of the United States or deprive them of life, liberty, and property without the due process of law. This gave the federal courts jurisdiction over what the states did and a capacity to review the legitimacy of their legislation, in fact, their own constitutions. Their own constitutions are now subject to federal review <clears throat> under the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment put to bed any libertarian notion of states' rights, in my view. We had a whole civil war about that, and then amendments that, that were passed to make sure that shit like, crap like that never happened again. Uh, and uh, so I have to say we're... For good or evil, we are we are in a federal constitution. If it if it comes to a point where the federal government is violating our rights, then we take up arms and we rebel against it. 
but we're not at that point yet. And it seems to me that the federal government's imposition of the Bill of Rights through the course of the 20th century did more justice um, against the states, eliminating all of these states. Take, for example, Jim Crow and segregation in the South. When finally the Supreme Court woke up and started to enforce the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment against the states, suddenly all of these racial injustices in law that states were doing were unconstitutional and the civil rights, in, hey, hit, shoot the gun, the, the racists were off with the civil rights movement. Uh, so yeah, a great thing happened to law enforcement, to, to uh, the, the racist laws that were happening in states. Uh, Things that were going on in public schools that violated the religious uh, the establishment of religion clause, et cetera, et cetera. So I would remind our libertarian friends that there were all kinds of rights violations and injustices on the state level that the, this new jurisdiction of the federal courts have protected us against. Yes, we're dependent on them for things like, say, abortion. And if the Supreme Court, the top federal court gets that wrong, it gets wrong all the way down the line. So the courts are, 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 are supposed to be a check on government power. They're supposed to be the means through which we can affect change uh, for the better or make our, uh, our government more consistent, more consistent in its application of the Constitution. What do we do when the courts are so corrupted by political ideology as they have been um, for a very, very, very long time? Now, can, can you trace a little bit of the first sort of corruptions within the Supreme Court. I mean, there's been a series of bad decisions since the 19th century, um, but I mean, in start particular. With, yeah, start with, uh, you know, uh -huh. a, a slave escapes to a free state and guess what? He can be hauled back to the slave state regardless of the free state's laws on slavery. Uh, this guy named uh, Tanny gave us Dred Scott, and folks like him, unfortunately, dominated the 19th century Supreme Court. When the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were passed to the Constitution, the Supreme Court immediately gutted the meaning of those uh, um, amendments. The 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause was meant to give equality under law, the specific motive for the free black slaves, but it said can't deny any person in their jurisdiction equal protection. Well, uh, the Supreme Court wouldn't have any of that uh, literal nonsense. And so in uh, 1892, under Plessy versus Ferguson, the law could recognize differences between blacks and whites, segregate them in public facilities, have laws that said you have to have the separate facilities and separate, oh, wait a minute, separate but equals, okay, under the Equal Protection Clause. In fact, any kind of recognition of a significance to race is okay under the Equal Protection Clause or take the Privileges and Immunities Clause, immediately gutted, meant to enforce the Bill of Rights against the, all the states to protect the person, all persons within that, that state. The Supreme Court said that's not what the Privileges and Immunities Clause means at all. They tossed it out the window, forcing us to go through the Due Process <laughs> Clause to enforce bit by bit the elements of the Bill of Rights against the state in a slow, peaceful meal fashion. Now, while that was going on, the Supreme Court, at least in the late 19th century, began to recognize the limits of federal power when it came to uh, regulating commerce. There is no general power to regulate commerce. 
that was given by the Constitution to the federal government. And yet that began to be encroached on more and more and more. From the In the late 19th century, the laws were struck down routinely as violating the Interstate Commerce Clause, which was no general grant of economic regulatory power to the federal government. That started eroding and going by the wayside in the 1920s, in the 1930s, and then especially in, by the 1940s with the Frankfurt Accord appointed by FDR. It now became clear that the Interstate mm -hmm. Commerce Clause meant just about, Congress could regulate just about anything that had any impact whatever on commerce or the economy or that uh, the necessary and proper clause, for example, uh, we can strike out that word necessary. Anything proper to do anything that vaguely regulates uh, commerce is A-OK. -okay. And so for the last 80 years, we've been living under a regime where the Supreme Court is basically just given the nod. Now, in the 20th century, what's heartening a little bit is that we've had in the last 20 years or so, several cases where the Supreme Court has actually invoked the Interstate Commerce Clause as limiting Oh, what the federal government can do. There was, for example, a law, the gun law, where they said that you couldn't have guns within a certain uh, distance of schools. The Supreme Court knocked that down, saying ha, ha, that does not come with the interstate commerce clause. How does the federal government? They didn't even use the Second Amendment, my brother. They used simply the interstate commerce clause to say, we don't see how the federal government under the interstate commerce clause can regulate guns near schools. How is that really connected even to interstate commerce? So there's been a slow stepping away, I think, but a very slow and gradual one uh, by more conservative courts in recent decades. But still, effectively, the Supreme Court has said that the Congress has unlimited economic power over the United States. Now, that's not within the Constitution. And a compact theory of getting out of the, you know, uh, the federal union isn't going to fix that. It really isn't. I can't imagine even a conservative union of states actually adopting a free market capitalist system. They'll have some kind of religious theocracy, as far as I'm concerned, something like Trump, Trump land. If you have Trump land in this country, what you're going to have is you're going to have, you know, a mercantilist state that looks very much like, you know, what a labor Democrat would have wanted 30 years ago on one side and a whole bunch of violations of civil rights based on religion, on the other hand. That's what I predict conservative land. If I predict a progressive land, I'm predicting a socialist state. So I do not like this idea at all of uh, segregating out anymore. You know, well, it's, it was bad for the uh, Civil War. It's still bad. Uh, perhaps the evil isn't as great, uh, you know, as chattel slavery, but we are dealing with evils uh, that both sides <clears throat> want to protect, in effect, by this kind of a uh, new call for uh, segregation or of the states, a separation, cessation, I guess the better word. Yeah, um, the, the, way you, the way you talked about the communities of the tradition state versus a socialist state reminds me of uh, my uh, my reality check on anarchy. So you should, you should check that out since we are, in a sense, dealing with anarchy uh, right now. That's what the compact theory of states would sort of lead us to, um, is that, that kind of thing. Now, all of this said, as terrible as Trump was in many ways, uh, some people at the very, very top of that of uh, 2016 said the only reason I'm voting for him is the possibility of support of of replacing Supreme Court justices, which he in fact did. Now, some of those decisions have been leading us in the right direction. <laughs> what do you say about what do you say about his his uh, his uh, nominees and and their job so far in the Supreme Court with respect to turning us back to the um, this ideal of uh, our relationship to the Constitution? <clears throat> in 
some ways the conservatives are better and in some ways the liberals are better on the supreme court if i were to rank them i would say i would prefer to live in the conservative world which is at least keeping some tenuous hold on the original constitution as tenuous as, it, as their own hold is at least they state some nominal uh, assertion of connection to it the left would take us completely completely unhitch us unmoor us from the language of the constitution they would in, in create positive rights welfare rights you have a right to education <laughs> at other people's expense you have a right to health care at other people's expense. they would have no problemo tomorrow all the in fact the three uh uh obama appointees who are uh, currently constitute the left most of the left on the supreme court would uh, obviously from their ap appointments have no respect for the limitations that were the uh, both the federalists and the anti-federalists agreed that the federal government has specific limited powers but there's no liberal who agrees with any side of the framers of the constitution here and they have completely unhitched from it so in this sense i would prefer conservatives <clears throat> Uh, even if this is it's going to kill me to say this, something so fundamental as a right to a woman's abortion is so important a thing to me that it is uh, it's you know you're getting on the verge of things like slavery and draft and where issues I think are so intensely important that it it, it bothers me. But on the other hand, keep this system intact because that was the system that gave us Roe, that gave us a system whereby we could protect individuals. <laughs> rights against majorities. So at least the conservatives would ret retain our the frame of our constitutional system where we might one day have something better, a broader understanding, a more principled understanding Correct. of rights. Well, folks, if you're if you're interested in what inspired this uh, conversation, it's uh, there is a series of editorials by Robert G. Nadelson in the Epic Times. He's talking about the history of the Constitution. He's also written a series of books on the Constitution, uh, which I am about three quarters of the way through the first volume. Uh, it's called The Original Constitution. I think James should be teaching a course in the Constitution because it's amazing. James, I have to start wrapping up here. Uh, we've got a couple of super chats, Jonathan Honing for $5. Thank you, Jonathan. Robert Nace here. Uh, James fitting a full lecture on the division of powers and hierarchy of authorities under our federal constitutional system in 30 minutes. Yes, you summed everything up in a, in a, a very economic time. <laughs> you did. Jonathan Honig gives us another 99 cents. Thank you, sir. So upcoming shows, 6 p.m. UK time, the reality show, who do you trust more, your family or Trump? Okay, I'd, I'd be interested in knowing why this question. Uh, 7 p.m. Uh, UK <laughs> time, the Fountainhead, the Fountainhead Book Club uh, for uh, Ayn Rand Center UK members. The session will also be live streamed to YT members. Uh, and uh, James will have a course on the Constitution. Oh, this is great. So you will be conducting you a course did on it. the Constitution. You said it. You, this is not <laughs> the first time you've said that. And so, Rozzy, is, uh, we're planning a course on the U.S. the history of the U.S. Constitution and individual rights. It, we're planning for October, uh, at the end of October. So by fall, we should have this. But it will be only for top-level subscribers of ARC UK. Uh, but we, you did it. Okay. <laughs> Fired us. Yes. Oh, and tomorrow, now I can't wait. Uh, oh, just one other ad. I, tomorrow I'm talking with Nicholas about Star Wars plot theme and romantic realist analysis of <laughs> the original Star Wars films with Nicholas. So you, you can't miss that.
Uh, that's awesome. I can't I can't wait to see that. I can't wait to participate in every single uh, class that you're going to have on the Constitution. Uh, tonight, folks, I am going to be having a discussion with the real Spike Cohen on the Fight Club. Is anarchy the purest form of capitalism? Uh, this is going to be this is going to be blood sport, folks. Uh, hopefully I, I represent our perspective. <laughs> I represent our perspective well. Also, don't forget to watch your reality checks. Don't forget to like and subscribe here because this content is great. Just listen to James. He gave you a lecture on the Constitution in 30 minutes. You cannot be fooled by the political class anymore after listening to James for just a few minutes. So imagine what an entire course on the Constitution would bring you. You should take it, all of you out there who are members, subscribers to the Ayn Rand Central UK, take it. This is gold. Uh, anyway, we have to go, James, as as always, it's been a pleasure. Uh, folks out there, uh, keep applying objectivism to life. And in the spirit of that, always remember to check your premises. Peace.